You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead. Before we jump into today's episode, I need to give you a little context as this is the second half of an interview and we are about to drop right into it. Make sure you go back and listen to part one in Tonebenders episode 163 to hear what we've already discussed leading up to this point. We had so much fun with this topic of conversation that the time just got away with us. We had to break it into two episodes. Today you're going to hear from Heather Olson from Gravity Falls Fairly Odd Parents, Kate Finan from Muppet Babies and Invader Zim, both who are joining us from California, as well as Dominic Lawrence from Octonauts and Danger Mouse joining us from Ireland. Also joining the conversation is my regular co-host, Teresa Morrow. She's a re-recording engineer and supervising sound editor for animated series. These guests have worked on nearly countless hours of broadcast animation. They know what they're talking about. So right now, I'm going to throw you into the conversation, and we're going to drop in while we're talking about the challenging schedules that come with series animation. So here we go. So uh, we've been dancing around the idea of schedules for a little while. Maybe we should tackle that idea. What would you say is the standard schedule turnaround from when you get the picture till you're on the mix stage, Heather? Generally about two weeks for us. But I'm working on a lot of shows, so I don't generally spend those two weeks on each show. But usually I'll have a picture at least two weeks ahead of time. Dom, Kate? Uh, for me, it would be, it's usually 10 man days, 8 to 10 man days. So that would be, if there's two editors, it usually works out about a week. And then a day's pre-mix, and then you'd batch mix the final mix, kind of maybe three or four episodes in a day kind of type thing. So that's how it kind of usually works out here. Yeah, you guys are so compressed over there. Batch mix. Yeah, yeah I've just yeah. noticed Yeah, batch this. mixing is not something that happens uh, for us over here. It sounds like... Um, Timothy is also saying that it doesn't happen for him. Dom, can you tell us what, what yeah. that is? Batch mixing is basically you do maybe three, four episodes in a day kind of type thing. Uh, so you've gone in and done a premix on all of them. Yeah, we do a premix, do a premix, send off QuickTime. Uh, the director would listen to it. It would also get sent off to the network or the producers or whoever, whoever needs to see it. We'd get the notes back. Um, we'd do all the fixes and then the director and would come in for a day and would kind of run through three, four episodes. Depends on how complex it is. We might only do two episodes. Depends on their final delivery schedule. Sometimes you're actually running almost two a week. Sometimes the actual animation studio might only deliver eight episodes in a whole batch to the network. So it kind of depends on that side as well as to how spaced out the, the they are. But yeah, we'd rarely mix one episode in a day, you know, maybe that's just schedules I'm so used to and it's become my normal, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't do that over here. I, I have a feeling that Heather and I have a lot of the same clients, so we're on a similar um, schedule. Most of the major studios and the smaller ones are making content for the larger studios, so for the most part, they're all on the same two-week uh, thing. So, you know, Disney, Netflix, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, the stuff that we do that ends up on Hulu tends to too. So whether it's going to drop in a batch on a streaming client or whether it's going to air um, somewhere or go on the Disney Plus app, we're like two weeks between all appointments and then it streams down the line. So we do spot 
And then two weeks later, there's a preview. And at that preview, we spot the next episode. And there can be any amount of time between the preview and the mix date. That usually just has to do with what day of the week that they've chosen. But usually it's like the following week or maybe a few weeks down the line. Um, But we have some like DreamWorks tends to get us stuff that's earlier stages of animation and we work on it earlier. So sometimes we'll spot six to eight weeks before the mix. And we still only take two weeks to work on it maximum, depending, like Dom said, depending how many people are on it. But we sometimes have that extra buffer where we could work on it this week or we could work on it two weeks from now. And some things we get locked picture and then exactly, you know, two weeks and one day later, we're doing the final mix, which is obviously a lot harder if we're trying to work on multiple shows or work around schedules or, you know, if anything comes in late or if we get, as you guys know, in CG animation, retakes has a very different meaning than it does in 2D. So for like retakes for animation, again, for your audience who aren't working in animation, retake is just when they redraw some part of the animation, basically, or they reanimate it on the computer. But it's unlike live action where you would go in and you would just shoot something again um, and then you would get new audio. They're going to normally keep the same audio, but they can change. It's just like Photoshop where they can change any layer. And so your guide track isn't necessarily going to move because they've recorded that early in the process when they were doing the animatics. That stays constant. But maybe the exact same scenario is happening where they're in a restaurant and they're all eating hot dogs, but a character might lift up their glass five frames later because they moved that layer in the animation. Same thing where you could get all of the VFX, which isn't just explosions and giant stuff that you would think of as VFX. It would also be any water is technically like a a big one. It's a big one. I've seen things on the air that I'm like, where did this come from? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's exactly it's missing until after the mix and we just guess where it is. You know, water is a big one. There are sparkles. Um, You'd be amazed how many sparkles are in animation. (laughs) But, you know, we're talking about like pixie dust types things. So a lot of transitional elements where if they have an animation instead of just hard cutting or dissolving in and out from black or white, you'll get um, like logo wipes and things where kind of like if you can imagine Batman, like the logo or Superman and stuff where the logo swirls in and then swirls back out again um, in order to wipe the screen. A lot of those elements come in really late, often after the animation process. We'll get them on the stage and then our mixer's going, hey, did you guys know that this was here? You just decided not to cut anything or should I be doing something here? You know, And so there's a lot that can happen with, with retakes too. Mm-hmm. And the show, some of the shows I've been working on uh, with a studio called Pipeline in Hamilton, we have a, uh, have a really close relationship with the online editor and he's the one who cuts the show to time and then he also does wipes and sparkles and some other visual treatments that and and the color grade um so he and i have a very tight dialogue uh, around last minute changes because he's the one who's also getting the new frames from animators and slugging those into the timeline so he can, it can be a great to have a good uh, line of communication with that person because they can flag it like, just got new frames, blah, blah, this person now walks in later, we took that background character out, so we don't need feet for that anymore, 
just to get like quick heads up on those little things that can change very easily change in animation at the last minute, like you're just saying, Kate. Yeah, and it's so it's so good to have a dialogue. And I I know earlier on I was very reluctant to ask for that because I don't think it nece- you know nobody's thinking about sound as we we all you know <laughs> begrudgingly probably say all the time to our friends around the water cooler. But you know there's a lot of um, thoughts about the visuals and how that's going to affect things down the line. But sometimes it doesn't occur to even the people on the higher end of the production that it will affect us or how much it will affect us. And I've had shows where they're sending two, three, four new cuts of picture in the middle of that 2 to 6 p.m. window of the client mix. And I'm trying to print stems at the end of the day. And they just keep sending things with no notes on what's changed. And again, if you're having these retakes that can happen without the guide track moving, without like the overall cut changing. So it's still a locked cut because none of the cuts have moved around, but maybe there are new visual effects in random places or new transitions, or maybe there's all the, like working on Octonauts. I mean, that must've been honestly kind of a nightmare because it's like, you never, you never know until you're like, it's it's the mixed day and you get something. So if you get a lot of picture, it took me a while to feel confident enough to say like, Hey guys, could you just tell me the time codes of where you put all the new shots in this? Because otherwise I have my Foley editor, my dialogue editor, my sound effects editor. I'm the mixer and I'm having to watch it every single time before I can output a new cut Mm -hmm. because I don't want to send something off that just doesn't have coverage. But at the same time, I mean, that's another 22 minutes. We're honest, one hour just to watch it. So if you keep adding that again and again and again to the mix process, it's it's very cumbersome. And you say time code, Kate, but I find um, when I'm talking to anybody on the picture side, um, I always reference the scene mm-hmm. because in animation, the show is assembled by scene number and nobody pre the online process, except maybe the director, if they want to exercise a few extra brain cells is thinking about time code they're always referencing the scene number and, yeah very uh, that's true. where that's the language that all of the animators are, are speaking so i always try and like make sure i always kind of say both mm-hmm. um just so whoever is receiving my message can process it quickly and in animation it's it's interesting to point out too that scene number like Teresa's talking about actually is each shot is a scene in animation. So sometimes when you, mm. if you start working on it um, and people start talking about scene numbers, it's good to know that so you don't get confused. A sequence is like when they're in a location and it's the scene, uh, like a quote unquote scene, like in a play. Um, and scene number is each individual shot. So usually we get burn in that has the sequence, the scene number and the yeah. time code all. So you, yeah, you have to get really good at referencing that burn in however people are talking about it. I had an incident recently where a miscommunication happened. Uh, the plot involved a character dropping a plate and the plate rolling down a hill, and the, everyone was chasing this plate. Between the first and the final version, the plate went from ceramic to metal. <laughs> so I had cut all of the ceramic plate noise, and it was like, wait, wait, what? Oh my God, okay, when are they showing up for this, the playback? Okay, I got to cut metal, metal, metal plates. And uh, like things, like it never even occurred to me to double check what that plate was made of. I just uh, made an assumption based on how it was animated in the first version I got. So it doesn't hurt to ask questions sometimes. Stupid questions, for sure. Yeah, yeah. we ask a lot of questions because we don't get textures a lot in the first pass on CG animation. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And 
A place that I see it especially affecting things is in Foley. It's just a floor. There's no carpet. There's no hardwood. There's no grass. There's no dirt. We have no idea what it's going to end up being until sometimes really close to the mix. So we also sometimes will ask for like design packages from the production um, on the first spot. They will have uh, like photos of every single location with it fully rendered. They'll have like sometimes little test clips where the camera is just swinging around because again in CG animation it's an actual set that they've built digitally and they place a camera and they place the lights. Um, So they'll oftentimes have materials like that. We ask it about it for the different characters because sometimes especially we work on stuff where almost no one's human and so we're going okay well this is a monster but is it furry does it have scales you know does it is it goopy on its skin we have no idea and sometimes even when we ask the people during the spot they're not quite sure how it's going to come back from animation and sometimes there are people on the design team of production who have an even better idea and we can kind of get in communication with them and get some materials early to so that we don't end up, we've definitely had shows where we had to redo all the foley because um, nobody knew that it was going to be carpet or something like that. So you always want to try and avoid that. Yeah, I've had people change their mind. It's like ceramic, not plastic. Mm, looks like ceramic, not plastic. Yeah. And then you get you put it all in, and it's like <laughs> no, it's ceramic now. <laughs> I was like, right, <laughs> unmute all the old stuff, and then you're yeah, you're never flying. delete, never no, delete. exactly, Just yeah, mute, yeah, put it aside, mm, never, yeah. never Type. delete. <laughs> I'm lucky to have an editor who cuts feet for me, and uh, he uses contact. And um, there's been lots of occasions where it's like, that whole thing, that's carpet. Yeah. And he'd be like, okay, fine. And he goes in and he just reprograms that sequence for his carpet feet and re-renders them because uh, he's already got the timing. And so he can turn, turn that around for me in like half an hour. And great, we're on our way. So in that way, cutting feet with contact has been really useful for us for getting yeah. things through a little quicker. There's a lot of nuances to getting it right, but it's pretty cool. We do all of our fully for the most part, in contact, too. And we do mm-hmm. a lot of the recordings um, live off the bat to make the sample. So we'll make our own. But it comes in really handy, too, with, like you said, swapping stuff out and then client notes, too, for just them having preferences. And sometimes we'll do some things on contact with our Foley editor that we also cut some in effects. Like an example is I work on this new show that has a lot of horses and they're wearing battle armor during the whole thing. And so, and the battle armor is of course a mix of leather and metal plates and chains and a bunch of different elements. So we were able to have our sound design team create what those sounds would be in the first pass, or at least what they thought they should be. And then they gave them with each texture separate to our Foley editor. And we made, you know, like movement one, movement two, movement three, movement four to program onto the keys. And then we tied that sync with each footstep so that when the horses are galloping and stuff, it can but a dump, but a dump, but a dump with the armor in place as well. And, you know, we actually got a note coming back saying, oh, it's too big. It's too, they had said, make it as big and Game of Thrones as possible, but then it got distracting, right? Which is like what Timothy was saying about the dog collar, you know, in animation, you want to hear it in the beginning, but then you really want to be able to pull back on it um, after you establish so that it doesn't get in the way, especially because we all have wild wall score and songs and all that stuff going on. So we were able to just redesign. I had, you know, our other 
editor come in and, and just give a totally different take on it after the preview when they bounced, you know, an entire episode's worth mm-hmm. of armor movement um, in a battle show with horses. <laughs> but we we're really easily able to swap all of that out and have it all just automatically sync up again. So there are some big pluses to doing contact fully for me in animation. Certainly, you know, having a live fully stage and and getting all that in live action, I think is, I, I would never want to step on the toes of all the talented Foley artists out there who are doing amazing work and bringing films to life. But in animation, sometimes it is a little bit more appropriate given our schedules and, and just the type of content. And it's also very repeatable as well. So there's complete consistency across the series, which I kind of find has come up before. You know, it's like we want the first few mm-hmm. episodes of a series, they get worked over quite a lot. By the time you get to episode 10, 15, you're in a real groove and everyone's kind of like, yeah, we just want that like it was in episode two or episode four. And it's kind of, once it's all kind of there digitally, then it's really easy just to kind of have that, that, that nice continuity down the timeline. All of us are really lucky because the animation seasons can get signed so many times over and over um, because kids are always age, re-aging up into the age range for content. So, you know, if your audience is two to five-year-olds, every three years, there's a 100% turnover of who's watching that show, right? So I've worked on some things that went for seven years, which isn't that crazy in animation. So again, you have like personnel changes and, you know, maybe you would have a different Foley team. They've moved on to a different job, et cetera. And like Don said, there's such great continuity to just have those materials belong to the show. And we obviously don't swap out people who are on stuff all the time. But when you're talking about something lasting 10 years, there's going to be a certain amount of different people getting different opportunities. Um, So yeah, it's that great for that reason. The opposite is true as well. The show that I'm working on, we're just wrapping up season seven. Uh, I've been on it since episode one, but not, the director hasn't. The producers that are on it right now haven't. Yeah. Like, so I have almost more, not knowledge, but I, yeah. I can tell them, oh no, we've been using this sound for this long and it, all of the previous directors always approved it. You know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> but also when you get a new director halfway through season three and they want to put all their new schna and mm-hmm. change in it, that is a dance because you also have to keep the voice of the show. So you you have to uh, balance that as well. But normally the directors are, are in agreement with that. They just want a few things changed that we're kind of grinding on them a bit. And a fun thing, too, is that, you know, for so when we work on 22 minute children's content, a lot of times, um, mostly for the younger audience. So if you work on junior stuff, which is two to five, but even in that yeah. seven to ten 7 to 12 range. It's often two 11-minute episodes because kids have a short attention span. So for any like adults who are watching this who don't spend a lot of time watching TV, we we do two 11s. And often in on my shows, there will be a different director for each one just to keep that production schedule rolling easily enough. And so again, yeah, I'll have one director who wants everything to be super high action and really contemporary and modern. And the other director wants everything to be Hanna-Barbera, you know, and we, there's a bit of a a push and pull because even within that same 22 minute episode, there can be two totally different ideas of what should be happening. So to say like, oh no, we have this established sound really does. Yeah. (laughs) Do wonders on getting everybody on board with the same thing. What about doing sound design for kids 
is kind of unique of the actual nitty gritty of either recording the sounds and putting them on the timeline. Kate, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, what's really fun is like you can animate things that are just outlandish that could not occur in a live action show. So, you know, you can have monkeys in space. You can have dinosaur robots. You can have, you know, an alien planet with like tiny ant people. And so a lot of times we're designing things that would only really be in giant budget movies with huge VFX budgets. They wouldn't be on like your standard kind of network live action TV show. And so we do a lot of custom recording of unexpected elements and then trying to make known items out of them. Mm -hmm. So I guess a good example of this is guns, right? In animation, everybody's nodding right now because a lot of what you see in an action children's animated series, they will have some sort of like a gun or a rifle. And it can't sound like a gun because obviously we're not trying to promote violence. We're not trying to promote firearms and neither are any of the networks. It's just sort of something that's intrinsic into action series that there might be a ray gun or there might be like a bubble gun where they shoot it and it like encapsulates a character inside of a bubble. Over and over, we're all, I'm sure, asked to create stuff where it feels like a gun. It matches the animation. It has all the essential parts. It has, you know, a cock and a trigger pull and it has a blast and and an impact. And so those are recognizable elements, but at the same time, it can't actually be gun sounds. So we do a lot of like custom recording. You know, I've gone to the thrift store and picked up a bunch of children's toys, you know, like Nerf guns and ratchets and things that just had really cool buttons. You know, I work on a preschool show called tots and there are all these giant mechanical things like conveyor belts and ferris wheels and stuff but they didn't want it to feel big and overpowering and like a scary factory so we recorded all of those elements with plastic toys so it just sort of had this different tactile feel to it there's just a lot of really interesting ways that you can approach the design side just from source elements no i totally agree with that I found also not only in recording source material, but in treating material as well, Mm -hmm. uh, in stuff that maybe in a live action or a sci-fi thing, I might put distortion on to rough it up. Instead, I'm finding I'm putting like uh, little flanders or choruses on to try and add some movement to it and make it a little bit more cartoony and friendly, but also not what a real helicopter sounds like or something like that. I do tons of recording in my space. I just had to record the sound of a raccoon <laughs> running with a bucket on its head and the bucket rattling around on that. So, yeah. So you I, got a raccoon I, I didn't have that and then you library, got a bucket, right? And then you let the raccoon run around. <laughs> I, do, I, I recorded three different buckets before I found one that worked for me. But yeah, for sure. So there's uh, always something actually, like um, that. On Octonauts, um, the, uh, the writers of the books, they were mad into the, the, the BBC radiophonic workshop, which was a lot of synthesized stuff. Um, so they actually, all the vehicles, they actually didn't really want a real mechanical propeller and all that kind of stuff. It was all real to be synthesized. So there was no field recording. We d- I did a lot of stuff uh, with a, a mic and a condom for kind of water stuff and all that. A lot of those bubble bath stuff actually ended up being used for kind of propeller turning. As for the actual mechanics, that is all, uh, I think we used Reason because it has just such a great stack of kind of synthesizers and samplers. Glass is a, a thing when it comes to kind of violence. Glass. Glass is a trigger for everybody. I had a character fly through a plate yeah. glass window and they're like, it can't sound like glass. I'm like, then why did he fly <laughs> yeah, through yeah. a plate glass window <laughs> on camera? So then you kind of use ceramic and kind of try to take the high end out. Like, yeah, I guess that's okay, but it's so strange. Yeah, and there's 
there are all these concerns, too, with uh, children's animation that nothing can be imitatable, you know, because they could be liable. You know, they can't show a kid jumping off the roof of a, a house with a cape on and then actually flying because, like, some kid might try and do that. They, they write what they want to write and they, they animate what they want to animate. And then as an afterthought, they go, yeah, but if it doesn't sound realistic, then we can say it's not real. You know, they're in some giant helicopter with a machine gun yeah. on it and we're we're trying to sound design a helicopter out of bubbles yep. you know <laughs> and make a gun out of uh but they still want the idea of it and the impact of it but it can't be a gun <laughs> yeah it's something i learned from watching tim cut is seeing his track layup on paw patrol like there's a certain amount of the hard effects that are kind of naturalistic sounds and then He'll do the design layer, which is the whooshes and the swishes. And, and then he's got the cartoon, like the classic cartoon sounds at the same time. Tim, his tracks for Paw Patrol are really incredible. Like they're very dense. I don't know how he gets a show out in a week. <laughs> Watching his conceptualization of how you make sure that all the bases are covered so that when all those sounds go together, it creates something unique that has motion that sort of threads the needle between the realistic and the animated fantasy world aspect of it. And that's kind of the trick. Sometimes it means taking one of those elements out. Sometimes it's just getting the right balance of those things or putting a treatment on it that's, that sort of glues it all together. But I like that idea of cutting in with a different intention in mind for each layer of effects that you're putting in. But that's also an art into itself because you you can't, because as we've talked about with the scheduling, we can't deliver tracks that are, you know, 56 tracks yeah. wide. The decisions have to be made by the sound editors because the mix doesn't have enough time to be going through and auditioning a bunch of different ideas and figuring out. So, like, I have to deliver a concise idea of what I'm doing using only a certain amount of tracks because if I don't, I'm going to get fired because the mixer can't get through this day going through a million tracks, like maybe someone who's working on, you know, the latest Finchner movie or Nolan movie where you can just deliver a bunch of stuff and they'll figure their way through it. You have to deliver what your vision is and hope that it's right. And sometimes it's not right. Sometimes maybe it won't work for reasons that uh, are beyond your control. You know, the music's clashing with it and you haven't heard the music yet. But I find the mistakes that I made when I was starting out in animation were almost all sins yeah. of... Uh, delivering too it's much it's not just you <laughs> same yeah, experience i know obviously yeah. but, so the art of it is is figuring out uh both the confidence to make those decisions and also trial and error what works because for everything that i cut i'm throwing out as much as i'm keeping you know uh, you try something oh okay i think i can do better and when you're younger or you don't have the experience you'll leave both but uh i find now that as much of the editing is after i've think I like it going back through and throwing out a bunch of it because it's not working anymore or it's not needed. This other sound is covering that element. I'll drag it all down to temp tracks, actually. So I still have it just in mm. case because it was a yeah. thought I had. And especially if they give a note and you're like, oh, I did have that thought. What, yeah. what did I do? So at least it's mm -hmm. still there. But yeah, I'll take it out so the mixer doesn't have to deal with it. It's just stuff they won't see. Uh, on the show I'm working on right now, Paw Patrol, I'm supervising uh, someone cutting feet, someone cutting BGs, dialogue, music. And then I cut all the hard effects. But on other shows, when I'm supervising and not cutting as much, that's the thing I find I'm saying to people yeah. the most is, okay, you've got 10 tracks wide on this quite simple sound. Do it in three. Yeah. And you have to take responsibility for the story. You have to pay attention to what's going on at this moment and 
make sure that that sound is salient, is going to cut through all everything else that's going on. Make sure that that is covered. Then go back and, and fill out the rest of the scene. But yeah, I think, Don, what you were saying at the beginning, like the idea of focus, the idea of economy, that's what's motivating you, basically. Yeah, like particularly if you're um, with explosions and that kind of stuff, lining up three explosions, bang on the same transient and all that kind of, you know, you're only ever going to really hear one. It's just that, that kind of simple stuff where it's just like, give me one good explosion, give me some nice de debris after that kind of stuff and then move on. I work a lot with younger editors who are joining our teams who have like a ton of talent. But like you guys said, they always in a matter of overcutting and they go, well, I just want to give the mixer choices. Unfortunately, like we don't have time to make choices on the stage. And we do want to choose between which element can pop through the music the most. But we're not making choices about what should this design sound like which are very different things. But I have this basic idea that I tell them that I like to work in groups of three. So I come from a music background. So you always want to have, if you're like doing a pop track, you want to have a low, you want to have some mids and you want to have some highs, right? Like if you're having a rock ensemble and then it feels balanced and you want to EQ so that everybody's kind of notched into a little thing. And obviously we don't do any EQing when we're doing sound effects editorial, unless if there's some extraneous reason. But I design every BG and every singular moment that synced like an explosion or whatever with that in mind. But I not only like to hit like the three frequency groups, I like to also with those three sounds, try and hit three different textures too. And I feel like there's a lot of economy that you can get out of just always with every single sound and every choice, holding yourself to that. You don't end up with, you know, eight tracks of like leaves crinkling that's basically sounds the same that's what you want to avoid and that's what i see a lot with younger editors but you know if you do an explosion maybe you want one that's like a big bombastic bomb going off that has a lot of transient and it's very low end and then i'll cut something that's like more mid-rangey but really distorted and has a lot of tail as a second element and then on the high end i would do a bunch of debris and so each of those three things is accomplishing something totally different in the sound and in the coverage and what it's covering on picture. But it's also hitting at the same time three different frequency ranges. And then, of course, obviously, it's one of those things where like once you learn to do that, then you can open it back up to cutting a lot more things and the, the world is your oyster. If you, when you're starting out, try and like hold yourself to that standard, it goes so far in making for an easy mix, but also one that really has a lot of punch and a lot of drive when we play the preview too, because there's not a bunch of just steadies going on where, you know, directors have mm. a really hard time ignoring steadies, whereas us as sound people, we can just kind of tune them out and go, oh, no, no, that'll just be, it, our mixer will ride that. That's Don't worry about point. it. <laughs> right. But you kind of want to keep things concise in that department too. Yeah. Force fields and kind of energy rays. There was loads of them in Danger Mouse and Transformers, that kind of real steady state stuff that might live for several shots, you know. Mm -hmm. Any kind of layer that has a bit of movement and wobble is probably going to be the layer I'm going to really focus on. It's going to catch in the ear. Any kind of low, steady drone, you might use at start and then it's kind of dipped off. Giving something different to actually, not over only frequency as Kate was saying, but just kind of actual texture and movement as well is really kind of handy from a mix point of view. The other thing I was going to say that we have to kind of mentally account for is the audience for these shows are going to watch them more than once. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you're working on a documentary or something like that, the chances are most audience members are going to see it once, maybe twice, where a lot of these shows, you know, my daughter has watched every episode of Octonauts 37 <laughs> times. 
So. <laughs> I've probably watched them more, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's not that you necessarily are changing how you uh, tackle things because of that, but there is a way that you can't get away with things because it's going to get caught. You know, the kids are going to notice it. And even though we talk about how we have to keep things focused and sharp for the kids between the combination of them watching it over and over again. And, you know, when you're three and a half years old or five years old, Octonauts is the most important thing in the world to you. You know, mom and dad are long less important than the Octonauts. Their focus is imminent. Like it's solely focused on that show when they're watching it. And I know that because I say, it's dinner time. It's dinner time. It's di- Stop. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. Tur- turn it off. So like the kids are really watching. And it's also a thing where we all have uh, contemporaries we went to school with or friends or other people in the same studio that are working on super cool indie films that are going to play in uh, this film festival. You know, the shows we're working on have millions <laughs> of eyeballs on them. Millions. You know, it's not going to just play at a film festival once and then maybe go to DVD for some people to see. Like, these shows get seen. And sometimes the instinct of people is, yeah, they get seen, but it's by a four-year-old. Who cares? Yeah. But that that's not uh, the way I choose to look at it. And especially since I've had kids, like these shows mean a lot to these kids. And uh, it, I think that it respects them to put as much care and tenderness into these shows as we can because they are going to be loved. I wonder if any of you have that experience of watching your kids or somebody else's kids watch children's television programming and kind of something you took away from that back into your work, even if you saw them watching maybe the show that you worked on and how they react to it. You know, I, I have an experience with that. I I worked with, at the very beginning of my career when I was right out of um, college, so I would have been like 22 or so, I was working on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. It's a really slow show. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but, you know, like they talk to the camera a lot. They wait for the answer. They go, which one's a triangle, you know, and then there's like five beats of silence. And as an adult and especially as a 22 year old, I was like, all right, let's pick this up. You know, like let's make something happen here. <laughs> and they're educational consultants and everything, which was very interesting to me as as a young person starting out in the industry to know how much went into stuff like that. But I just kind of took for granted that that was a certain blip in time when that style was really popular. But I have a son now who's two and a half and he was a late talker. So he at almost two years old wasn't really saying very much, just a a few words. So we started doing speech therapy with him. We do all of these things where you always say things three times um, because it helps to solidify it in the toddler brain. But just all of the things that we, we worked on integrating into our lives and into like his speech to get him talking were things that had been cemented into my brain from 10 years of working on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, and I never realized how important that they were, that they weren't some trend in children's stuff, that they were actually on the cutting edge of, you know, speech therapy, of children's cognitive development, and that it was working. And we actually started then having him watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse because I was like, oh, I know this stuff. Like, it's I worked on a show that did this. He just, all of a sudden, he was talking back to the camera. He was speaking. He was answering the questions. He was following the plot line in a way that I didn't realize he could at his age and coming up with, you know, like, which tool should they use and being like, oh, the the baby elephant. Elephant. You know, of course, that's it's the baby elephant, which I had thought, you know, was ridiculous at the time at 22. I was like, what are they doing with this baby elephant? But for his little toddler brain, it was the 
the perfect thing. So yeah, it, it is really neat to see animation in all the different stages of my life and, and it becoming applicable with, with the kids that I have. It's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. I find when I review stuff, if I'm not getting it, if I have a sense of kind of like m there's a muddle in that sequence in my own mind, I'm like, if I don't get it, this needs to be simplified so that uh -huh. it's it's not just kind of a, a bunch of impressions or the dialogue and the music are kind of mixing up. So I find that if I'm not trying too hard, am I getting it? Then I'm I'm confident that children are going to be able to follow along. I, I hope so anyways. Yeah, like I did an episode of Danger Mouse, which was based on Inception, um, the Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> Inception in two and a half hours, you know, is tricky enough, but Inception in 11 minutes was, um, that took a lot of kind of work. And as you were saying, just kind of make sure that the kids kind of understood what was kind of going on and didn't need to see a two and a half hour movie to get all the references and all that kind of stuff. So, um, Octonauts actually had, um, proper real life marine biologists. They were all over the script and all that kind of stuff. So all the facts and all the animals are actually really real. And I, like some of them, I, even when I was looking at the working on the episodes, I was like, that's not real. Uh, like, and I was 28, 30 at the time when working on it. And I couldn't believe some of this stuff was real. So it was entertaining and educational from kind of all ages from that point. So of view. Uh, I got a quick story for you all about the moment in my life where I was cooler than I will ever be. I went and did a talk <laughs> to my son's first grade class. I brought in a computer, an edit session, and a microphone, and a script for one of the Paw Patrol episodes. And I got the kids to come up, and I got them to read different characters and quickly cut it in. And then, uh, you know, I played them, okay, well, this is what uh, just, it sounds like with just your voice. And then, okay, I'll put the feed in. And then I put the backgrounds in. And, like, they were wrapped. The, there was no way anything was going to change their focus. They looked at me like I was a god from another planet. And then... I had brought in uh, my sound miner and my sound effects library as well, and I preloaded it so that I said to them, can anybody think of a sound? I have just about any sound in the world. What sound would you like to hear? And obviously they all yelled fart because that's what kids do. Mm -hmm. And I had already typed fart into sound miner. So I just hit space bar <laughs> and uh, started playing a bunch of farts and they like their mouths dropped to the floor. They couldn't believe how cool my job was, how cool I was. And when I looked at my son who was in the class... I was just like, I will never be as cool to this boy as I am right now. And uh, I've gone on to prove that to be the case. He won't even pay attention to me nowadays. But um, it's really cool to uh, see the effect that these shows have on kids in a first-person situation like that. This was really great, everybody. Thank you very much for taking part. It was lovely uh, to meet you, Dom, and to meet you, Heather, and to see you again, Kate. There you go, that's our round table on sound for series animation. This was a really fun talk to be a part of, and I am sure we could have gone on for hours longer. And who knows, maybe we'll get the band back together one day in the future and continue this discussion. Again, if you missed part one, check out Tonebenders episode 163 to hear that half as well. A massive thanks goes out to Rob Spate for volunteering to edit and mix this episode. He has worked internationally as a sound designer and audio engineer over the last 25 years, Rob was great to work with, and everyone should look him up at robspate.com. That's R-O-B-S-P-E-I-G-H-T.com. Or follow him at Twitter at Rob S. Sound. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned. We have some great episodes coming up in the future. See you soon. Thumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro audio related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9am and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound podcast. Each episode, we talk with production sound mixers, boom ops, and other film industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location for TV shows, features, and independent films. Our past guests have worked on projects like HBO's Beep, the Netflix series House of Cards, Discovery's Naked and Afraid, and so much more. We do talk a little tech, but then we get into the stories of working behind the scenes on set. This is the Location Sound Podcast.